The book of Acts begins with a babble of tongues. The Spirit falls on the apostles and they begin to speak. And what they speak is heard in many different languages. It's a babble of tongues and reminds us of the Tower of Babel, where God confused the tongues of the peoples who were building the city and the tower in defiance of God. But this is not a repeat of Babel. This is a reversal of Babel. When the Spirit comes, the scattered nations, the nations who have been split up according to lip and language, are being reunited so they can communicate and commune once again with one another. Pentecost reverses Babel and gathers the nations together. Luke includes a couple of hints, a couple of literary hints, that this is a reversal of Babel and not a repetition of Babel. He reverses the order of events or the order of things in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 10, there's a table of nations, a list of nations of those who descended from Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then the Tower of Babel follows in the next chapter. Chapter 10 is a table of nations and then the Tower of Babel. Luke instead, at the beginning of Acts, gives us a table of nations, uh, sorry, gives us a, a confusion of tongues, a miracle of tongues, and then a table of nations. In Genesis, a table of nations and then confusion of tongues. In Acts, there's a miracle of tongues and then a table of nations. And the table of nations that Luke includes includes nations from each of Noah's three sons. There are Shemites listed, there are Hamites listed, there are Japhethites listed. Luke is showing us that what happened in Genesis is rolling in reverse and the nations are being regathered. He gives another indication, another literary hint of the reversal of Babel that's going on. At the beginning of Genesis 11, the Shemites are traveling from west to the east and they get to the plains of Shinar and they begin to build a tower and a city. They're moving away from Eden, as everybody does in the book of Genesis. They're moving, they're moving east. When Luke, tells, uh, when Luke tells the story of Pentecost and gives his table of nations, he lists them in the opposite direction. He lists them from west to east, ending with Rome. From east to west, I'm sorry. From east to west, ending with Rome. As if... He's giving us a table of nations, a collection of nations that is moving back toward Eden. Instead of going away from Eden, away from the presence of God, we have a literary textual table of nations that's being regathered and going back into Eden. The table of nations continues to be important in the book of Acts after the incident at Pentecost. After Stephen is stoned to death, the people of the, the disciples of Jesus scatter from Jerusalem and they go to various other cities. And their ministry follows the table of nations. Philip goes to the Samaritans. Those are Shemites. Then he's whisked away to the wilderness. And who does he find in the wilderness? An Ethiopian eunuch, a Hamite. And then when Paul comes on the scene, he's sent off to the Gentiles, to the nations, who are largely descendants of Noah's son, Japheth. The story of the book of Acts is the church going out, calling the sons of Noah back together into the ark of the church, reversing Babel and going back into a table of nations. In fact, the Lord has never forgotten the Gentiles. 
Of course, his focus throughout the Old Testament was on Israel, but he never forgot about the Gentiles, as Paul tells the people of Lystra. Even when the Gentiles were let, uh, let, given permission to go their own way, God has been a permissive father. His children have been unruly children. The Gentiles have been unruly. They haven't had the discipline of the law. They haven't had the discipline of God's presence. They've been unruly children, and yet all along, they have been the creator's children. For we are all his offspring. And the Lord never forgot them, and never let the Gentiles forget him. He gave gifts, the gifts of heaven, rain from heaven. And when the gift of heaven comes, then there are fruit, there's fruitfulness from the earth. The gifts of heaven and earth are given to the Gentiles, not just to Israel. He gave them the gift of food and the gift of gladness. Even when they were going astray, even when they were defying him, even when they had forgotten him and ignored him and worshipped other gods, the creator never forgot them. And the gospel is the announcement to these Gentiles that the time of permissiveness is over. God is no longer letting the Gentiles go their own way. He's no longer letting the nations go. He hasn't forsaken them, and now he's coming out of hiding. He's given them a silent witness, but now he speaks through the apostles. He's given them the gift of joy and food, but now he's calling them to come back to their father, the creator of heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in it. He's calling them to come back like the prodigals that they are. And when they come back, he will welcome them with a kiss and with a feast. This is the message to all the nations in the book of Acts. All the nations are called to gather back to their creator. The sophisticated philosophers of Mars Hill in Athens, they show up later. They're called to follow the resurrected Jesus. But also in this passage, the rustics, the backwoods people of Lystra. Lystra is in a central area of Asia Minor. They were considered a barbarous backwoods people, kind of like the hillbillies of West Virginia or Kentucky. But Paul goes there. He doesn't just go to Athens. He goes to Lystra and everywhere in between. He goes to small towns. He goes to Rome. He starts out in Jerusalem and comes back to Jerusalem. This message is for everyone. It's a message about the end of that age of permissiveness and the Lord gathering all his people, all, his, all the nations, back to himself. The book of Acts is like a, an extended narrative table of nations. And the Spirit is writing a new table of nations through the apostles and through their preaching. It seems like it would be easy to sell this message. I mean, people have been wandering away from their creator for centuries and millennia. They haven't known their creator, and now their creator, their heavenly benefactor, is showing himself and speaking and inviting them back in. Who wants to keep Babel? Nations that can't understand each other, nations divided from each other, nations at war with one another. Who wouldn't want to go back to Eden? Well, as it turns out, lots of people. There are people who have vested interests in keeping the things the way they are. And everywhere the apostles go, they face opposition. Opposition from people who don't want to repent, don't want to make the change, don't want to accept this new world that Jesus has brought in. But they don't just refuse to accept it. They want, to, want it to stop being proclaimed. So already in Jerusalem, 
the apostles in Jerusalem face an escalating series of persecutions. Peter and John heal a lame man by the gates of the temple. And the Sanhedrin calls them in and warns them, don't talk about Jesus anymore. They keep talking about Jesus. So the next time the Sanhedrin gathers all of the twelve, and not only warns them, stop talking about this Jesus, but also flogs them. Of course, the apostles don't listen. They rejoice that they're called to suffer with Jesus, and they continue to preach. Then Stephen comes on the scene as a great preacher of the gospel, and they don't even put him on trial. They don't even have a legal procedure. A mob stones Stephen. A warning, a flogging, and a stoning. That's the mission in Jerusalem. That's the response of the Jews of Jerusalem to this happy message, this message too glad to be true, that God is gathering all nations back to himself. And Paul faces exactly the same kind of escalating opposition as he goes on his first missionary journey. At Pisidian Antioch, he preaches, lots of people believe, but then the Jews begin contradicting him, and so Paul moves away. He moves on to another city, shaking the dust off his feet. He's not under threat, but he's opposed, and so he gives that, that city over to, uh, there's a church there now, but he leaves that city behind. Then he goes to Iconium, as we heard in the sermon text. And in Iconium, he doesn't just have opposition, but he has opposition from people who are plotting to stone him to death. Fortunately, Paul and Barnabas hear about the plot, and so they flee the city, and then they go to Lystra in the area of the Lycaonians. And at Lystra, there's not just a plot to stone Paul. Paul actually gets stoned. They leave Pisidian Antioch. They have to flee from Iconium. And then in Lystra, Paul is actually stoned and left for dead. There are people who oppose this message. There are people who want to keep the world as it always was. And the main people who want to do that are the Jews. The Jews mount the main opposition to Paul's ministry. That's what happens in Lystra, in the largest section of the passage that I've read as the sermon text. This is the climactic, climactic incident of Paul's first missionary journey. And it begins in Lystra the way the mission to Jerusalem begins. There's a man sitting by a temple. This time it's the temple of Zeus, not the temple of Yahweh. He's lame from his mother's womb. He's never walked. And Paul heals him, the same way Peter and John healed the man at the gate of the temple. Paul gazes at him, as Peter and John gazed at the man in Jerusalem. When the man is healed, he doesn't just stand up, he leaps up, as did the man in Jerusalem. Like the returning exiles in our Old Testament lesson today in Isaiah 35. Paul commands the man to rise, and he rises. He has the power of the living God, the power of the resurrected Jesus, the spirit of the resurrected Jesus with him. And when he speaks, he gives a new life to the lame man. This is a healing, but it's a healing that reverses a lifelong disability. The man becomes a new man. It's like a resurrection, and the language that surrounds this is like the language of resurrection. And as in Jerusalem, this miracle causes a stir. When Peter and John healed the lame man in Jerusalem, 
who's well known to everybody because he begs outside the temple gates, a crowd comes around them. They want to hear more about this Jesus that Peter and John are preaching. When Paul and Barnabas heal the lame man in Lystra, a crowd comes around them, and this time, the crowd is pagan, they're idolaters, and they think the miracle is so great, this man has been healed and been given a new life, new legs, an ability to leap and walk. These must be gods among us. They call Barnabas Zeus, and they call Paul Hermes, and they begin to sacrifice to them. And Paul and Barnabas have to convince them not to sacrifice, which they barely do, according to Luke. It's the same incident with the same result, but ultimately the result is not favorable to Paul and Barnabas, but it, it adds to and intensifies the persecution, just as it did in Jerusalem. That healing of the lame man in Jerusalem is the great cause of the Sanhedrin's opposition to the apostles. You'd think they'd be happy that a lame man had been, had been healed, that this lame man had been given a new lease on life. But the Jews are not happy because they did it in the name of Jesus. And when Jews come from Antioch and Iconium to Lystra, they convince the Lycaonians, the Lystrans, that they should not listen to Paul. And instead of wanting to worship him, they drag him outside the city and stone him and leave him for dead. It's the Jews that instigate that, that turn, that reversal of the acceptance of Paul and Barnabas. It's not entirely unexpected. As I said, the people of Lycaonia were proverbially barbarous people. There's a legend of a king, Lycaon, who was visited by Zeus, somebody claiming to be Zeus at least, and he put Zeus to the test. Zeus should be able to recognize the taste of human flesh. And so Lycaon, the king of the Lycaonians, made a dish for Zeus that included some animal meat, but also included flesh of his son, and served it up to Zeus. Zeus, being a god, could tell the difference. He knew there was human flesh in there, and so he turned Lycaon into a wolf. Lycaon kind of means wolf. The Greek word for wolf is lykos. And the Lycaonians are known not only by that legend, but also by their very name as a wolfish people. It's not really surprising that these pagans told to give up their idols, to change all of their traditions, to change all of their religious traditions, to stop worshiping Zeus and Hermes and start worshiping a different god of whom they've not heard. It's not surprising that they would turn wolfish and begin devouring the apostles. They turn predator. What's a little surprising is that it's the Jews who turn them wolfish. These Jewish leaders who are unbelieving, they come as, sheep, as wolves in sheep's clothing. They are predators, and they are beginning to chase Paul around, all of his, uh, around wherever he goes on his mission. There's an anti-mission, a Jewish anti-mission, that's following in the footsteps of Paul. Wherever he goes, there are Jews right behind him who are trying to undo what he's done. In the New Testament, the Jew, Jew, Jerusalem and the, Jew, the Jewish world are called Babel. I think they're called Babel for a lot of reasons. But one reason they're called Babel is because they are the leaders of a Jew-Gentile, an international coalition that opposes the gospel, that's opposed to Jesus the Christ, that wants to undo the mission of the church. 
They're called Babel because the Jews are the main defenders of the old world, the old divided world, the old world of confusion, the old world of Babel that the Spirit is undoing. They want to preserve that. And they're even willing to go on a mission to preserve it, to follow Paul around wherever he goes on an anti-gospel mission, which turns out to be also an anti-Jewish mission. Think about what the Jews are doing here. Paul comes to Lystra and talks to pagans, one of the only two times in the book of Acts where he's actually talking just to a pagan just to a pagan audience. The other one is in Athens. He's talking to pagans and he said, stop worshiping your idols. And they're listening to him. Put away these idols. And then the Jews come along and say, don't listen to Paul. Which is as much as to say, you're Gentiles. Go ahead and keep your idols. That's not what Jews are supposed to be saying. Jews are supposed to be saying what Paul says to the Gentiles. There is a creator God. There is a God who has not forgotten you. There is a God who gives you gifts. A God who wants you to return to him. That's the Jewish message. Paul's preaching that Jewish message. But the Jews who hate Paul, and they hate Paul, and they hate Jesus, and they hate the mission of the church so much, that they're willing to encourage the pagans to remain pagan. To undo the mission of Israel as long as the mission of Israel doesn't get fulfilled as the mission of Jesus. It's as if they undo themselves in un trying to undo Paul's mission. The gospel always provokes opposition. Everywhere Paul goes, he provokes opposition. He creates new divisions where there weren't, the, weren't divisions before. He goes to Iconium, for example. There are already Jews and Gentiles in Iconium. But when he gets to Iconium, the city is divided. And the city is divided now between those who listen to Paul and, the, Paul and Barnabas and those who listen to the Jewish leaders who are opposing Paul and Barnabas. There's a new division. God intends to gather all nations together, but he does it with a sword and creates new divisions among peoples even as, he carry, as he's carrying out a mission of unity. That's the way the church's mission goes. Paul creates new, division, new divisions. Paul provokes opposition. That's how the gospel progresses. That's what Paul says on his way back to Antioch uh, after he's visited Lystra. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul knows that every believer, like every person, suffers. Paul knows that everyone has health problems, loss, opposition from friends and neighbors and even family members. Paul knows that everyone who is a believer will suffer in being a believer. And he calls those suffering in the church to suffering witness. Those who suffer in the church are in a particular way, in a very vivid way, embodying the sufferings of Jesus. They are representing the very sufferings of Jesus. This is what Paul says about his own ministry. I bear on my body the brand marks of Christ. Everywhere I go, I get beat up. Everywhere I go, I get new scars. I can show you my scars. But that's just a sign that he is a true, a, a, a true apostle. That's not a sign of his failure as an apostle. It's a sign that he's participating in the sufferings of Christ. Paul knows that every Christian 
is, it has the same calling. And some Christians in particular live lives of suffering, suffering witness because the power of God is made perfect in weakness. But I don't think that's precisely what Paul means here when he says through many tribulations we enter the kingdom. In the New Testament, the word tribulation takes on an almost technical sense. When Jesus talks about the great tribulation that's coming, he's not talking about a great tribulation that's going to happen sometime in the 21st or the 22nd century. He's talking about a great tribulation that will happen in the age of the apostles. And that great tribulation will involve opposition and conflict and, and death for the followers of Jesus. But that great tribulation, is just, that's just the birth pangs of the, of the kingdom. That's just the birth pangs of the new world that is being born by the Spirit. That's what Paul's talking about here, I believe. Not, not about the sufferings that we have in general. Paul knows that we all suffer. He's talking about the specific suffering that the mission of, God, mission of Jesus undergoes, the mission of God undergoes as it spreads throughout the world. And that great tribulation is always, for the, in the first century, that great tribulation is the beginning of a new world. It's the breakdown of an old world. It's the opposition that comes from people who want to keep the old world. But it's not going to succeed because God will bring a new world. Paul's talking about that great, uh, that great tribulation of the first century. But of course what he says about tribulation in the church and tribulation in the mission of the church is, uh, applies to every, every phase and every generation of Christians. Tribulation is a permanent feature of the church's mission. We will always, always have enemies. Think about the message that we bring to people. To rulers, Paul has a message. You need to bow to a higher ruler, King Jesus, the Christ. You need to recognize that you don't have absolute power, but you, have, you must obey another king. You think that that's going to go over well with kings? Is that going to go over well with Caesar? Is that going to go over well with the tyrants of our own day? No. The gospel comes to people and says, give up your idols. Whatever you're clinging to and worshiping, lay them aside because they are nothings. Worship the true and living God. But my father and my grandfather and my great-great-great-great-grandfather worship these same idols. I don't care, the apostles say. The church must say, give them up. That's not easy. And some are going to cling to their idols. Give up your ancestral hatreds. Become table companions at the Lord's table with all those peoples that you used to hate. Those people that you, you defined yourself as the people who hated those other people. That's who you were. Got to give that up. There are always going to be people who reject the radical repentance that the church calls for. That the church calls for from kings, that the church calls for from idolaters, that the church calls for from haters. There are going to be enemies. We're going to have enemies. And that is the path to the kingdom's coming. There is no other path. There's no bypassing the tribulation. There's no bypassing the opposition. There's no bypassing the conflict. Wanting to have the mission of the church successful, wanting to have a successful mission without opposition and conflict and suffering and tribulation is like having, wanting to have the resurrection 
without the cross. Which doesn't even make any sense because if you don't have a cross, you don't need a resurrection. Jesus is the crucified and risen Lord. And we follow him in both. And the mission of the church has features of both. Our mission is a mission in opposition to the world. And the world will fight back. Sometimes more intensely, sometimes less intensely, there will always be enemies. And if we want to see the glory of the mission, of the church's mission, then we have to be willing to bear the cross and follow Jesus in his suffering. This doesn't cause Paul to despair. He doesn't think that tribulations are a, are a flaw in the system. It's not a bug. It's part of the design. Here in Lystra and in Paul's first missionary journey, the more intense the opposition is, the more boldly Paul and Barnabas speak. Instead of shutting up when people want to kill them, they speak more openly than ever before. And the Spirit intensifies the signs and wonders and confirming miracles to confirm the message of the apostles. The more intense the opposition gets, the busier the Spirit gets. The Spirit gets busy giving Paul the, uh, and Paul and Barnabas the ability to do signs and wonders. He, the Spirit gets busy giving Paul the power to command a man who's been lame from birth to stand up and leap and walk. I think the greatest miracle in this passage is a miracle that kind of passes by our attention. Paul's lying on the ground, left for dead. It's the corpse of an apostle, as far as anyone knows. And what do the people do who were convinced by Paul's preaching? Run and hide? Renounce Paul? Surely they were tempted to. No, I'm not his follower. The disciples stood around him until he gets up and goes back into the city. They drag him out of the city to stone him. The disciples don't break up and fragment. They gather around the corpse of Paul, what they think might be the corpse of Paul, and then they follow Paul right back into the place that was stoning him just a few minutes ago. You want a miracle? That's a miracle. That's a sign and wonder as great as raising a lame man who has never walked in his life. What Paul leaves behind in Lystra is a fearless church. A church who is not going to be cowed and intimidated by stones. Kill us. We're still going to gather around and we're going to come back into the city. This is our home. We're going to stay here. We're going to witness to Jesus. The more intense the opposition gets, the busier the spirit becomes. The more intense the opposition gets, the bolder the apostles are. Through many tribulations, the kingdom, many tribulations, the kingdom comes. And it's not just that we have success or the kingdom or resurrection on the other side. Paul says that we are more than conquerors in the midst of our sufferings. In and through tribulations, the scattered sons of Noah are being gathered into the ark of the church. In and through our tribulations, the father is welcoming the prodigal's home. It's in and through our tribulations that the lamb and his lambs triumph over the wolves. 
It's in and through our tribulations that the Spirit is writing the new table of nations. The new table of nations that's written with the blood of martyrs, with the blood of witness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is your King at your right hand. And we thank you that we have the privilege of sharing in his ministry and in his mission. Father, we pray that we would do that with courage. We pray that we wouldn't be surprised by the persecutions that come our way. We pray that we would not be frightened. And we pray that through our tribulations and through the conflicts that you bring into our work, that you would be accomplishing your purposes. And that Jesus Christ, the suffering and risen Lord, would be exhibited in our work uh, on your behalf. We pray this in the, for the sake of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.